Greetings, friends. It's good to be back with you. I was here in August. It's good to be back. And uh, I bring you greetings from God's people on the far other end of Long Island, the dirtier, more suffocatingly crowded end of Long Island. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I love living in Brooklyn. I love visiting here, too. So uh, it's, let me begin just by congratulating you. You've made it 1 24th of the way through the year. So good job. Um, and because putting it that way reminds you we are still just at the beginning of this thing, I thought that it's still a good time. January is always a good time to go back to the beginning to talk about uh, new things, things that we want to build our lives around, making new starts. Uh, and so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, the creation of the first man and woman of humanity, uh, and then we will discuss and apply that in one specific direction this morning, which I'll share with you after we read. So let's read first Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you pray briefly with me? Father, we thank you for your written word. Uh, It is attested by, well, to its own self and by the power of your Holy Spirit in your church throughout history that it is the living and active word that you have for us even today here, living in the 21st century. And so I pray that for each person here, wherever we may be in our faith or in our trying to find faith or actively wondering if we can even have faith, I pray that you would speak to us in the way that we need to hear, each individual here, what they need for life and for health and for salvation today and this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I'm not a super great or confident preacher, so I need some help from you guys. My congregation helps me out. You know, they give me a little feedback as we go. So I'm just going to start with simple. I'm not going to make you yell amen or yell out or anything like that, but I might make you raise your hand, okay? How, How many of you made a New Year's resolution this year? You're kidding me, really? You just Are you afraid to raise your hand or it's really like 10% of you? See, it's like 99% of my congregation, so that may, maybe that has something to do with the fact that they're all 18. I have no idea. Um, but at any rate, uh, if you didn't even make, let's say you didn't make a resolution, New Year's is one of those... Um, it's one of those times that everybody loves, everybody gets excited about, because even if you didn't make an official resolution, it's, it's just because you're, you've lived enough, you've done it enough, and you're too cynical to just do the thing again, right? You're not, you know better. So you're not going to make the official resolution. But I'm sure all of you thought, you know, this year, 
2015. Man, I hope this happens. I'm going to try to do more of this, less of this. And maybe you just didn't put it on paper or tell anyone. But you were in your heart. You were hoping for a new start and some stuff, right? And part of the reason that we get excited about things like New Year's and New Beginnings is because we know that we need this. We need, this, we need seasons in our life in which we recommit ourselves to things. We, we look back and think of where we've gotten off the way we thought we would be going and how we might get back on or whether there are new paths that we might want to take. So it's about renewing. It's about making changes. And I would, think, I would say that in all of this, what it's really about is that we're hoping we, be, we can become, this year more than last year even, we can become the people we really want to be. Isn't that what it's really all about? I want to in some way more fully become the person that I feel like I'm meant to be. It's about discovering your true self, right? And so for me, you may say, I'm, I'm not supposed to be a 25-pound overweight person. And so I'm going to do this diet, right? And I'm going to be, that's my true self. And I was, you're supposed to laugh at that, but that's fine. You're, you didn't want to hurt my feelings. You know, you're, you're empathizing with me, but that's okay. What I want to suggest to you, your wishes, your desires, your pictures, however you conceive of them, of what your truest self is, what, who you're most meant to be, that for most of us, most of the time, these kinds of commitments, these kinds of hopes happen within, a, within certain confines. These confines are ones that uh, take up our imagination, our expectations of the world and the way we're meant to be in it. They're given to us by patterns, by stories, by examples, by advertisements, by all sorts of things. And I want to give one general critique to the things that you're probably thinking you wish would happen to you this year or that you wish you could commit yourself to. I would bet that if we, if we said what they were, we put them on a paper and we counted them out, that the vast majority of them would be primarily individualistic, perhaps even materialistic. And if they have anything to do with relationships, they don't get much beyond your personal blood family, right? Maybe I want to meet someone that I can fall in love with and get married to this year. I want to be a better dad or mom. I want to do sets and shots. So in other words, they're very individualistic usually. How can I be better in my career? How can I be a better person in my health or fitness? How can I be uh, a little more self-fulfillment in my relationships, my personal, immediate sort of relationships? See, we've been asked this question, or I started getting asked the question, what are you hoping to be and what are the kind of answers you give? And Genesis, especially the first chapters, but all of it really, is God's sort of original vision. This is his answer to what and who are you supposed to be? This is, this is where God meant for people to look when we say, what, what is it we're supposed to aspire to? What kind of commitments do I want to, to give myself to? How do I want to be renewed? How do I want to make changes? Well, Genesis is largely his answer of what we were made to be. It's a picture of our truest self. And I want to explore, you can say, I mean, one of the beautiful things about reading Genesis 1-3, through 3, especially over and over and over again throughout your life, is because it's sort of the beginning, you can see almost every theme in your life and in the scriptures traced back there, right? And so we could do many, many, many sermons on just Genesis 2 for a long time, but this morning I want to focus on one. I think it's important and I think it will bear a lot of fruit for you in 2015 if you give it attention. And that's this, that we, we see in the beginning here that we were made for relationship. We were made for relationship. And so we should pursue one another. These are where you should put your commitments, 
put your energy, put your hope, is in pursuing one another in this church and beyond because we were made for relationship. And I want to look at a few aspects of that this morning. The first, and I want to think about it this way, why? Why would you pursue one another? Why, or in what way are you made for relationship? How does that really hit home? And I want us to see a few things. The first I want us to see is that God has made us, especially in Christian relationships, okay, when, when we are renewed in the image of Christ and have his Holy Spirit and, and knit to one another, in Christian relationships, loneliness is to be thwarted. This is one of the reasons you should pursue one another, because loneliness is thwarted in, the, in, in, in relationships. Last spring, the National Science Foundation reported in its general social survey that unprecedented numbers of Americans are lonely. The study featured 1,500 face-to-face interviews and more than a quarter of the respondents, you get that one in four people, more than that, said that they have no one with whom they can talk about their personal troubles or triumphs. One in four of you have no one you can talk to freely about your personal troubles or triumphs. Furthermore, they asked, what about, let's get rid of your immediate family members, your blood ties or whatever it may be. If families are not count, family members are not counted, the number of people surveyed doubled to over half. Over half of Americans have no one outside their immediate family with whom they can share confidences. Isn't that astounding? And what I want to say to you is that this should not be. In the Bible, all reality, the way that we were made, why we were made, the universe in which we find ourselves, this very place was made, was rooted in relationship. If you are familiar, you'll learn about this, I'm sure, to a little bit in Christianity Explored, if you go to that. Um, If you've been around, certainly you've heard about it. When you do the creed, you confess it. And that is that before anything was made, God himself already existed. God existed as a plurality, as a social uh, being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three unique persons, and yet unbroken, one essence, knit together. Right? Knit together perfectly. And this, and we're going to explore that throughout this morning, that picture of the Trinity. But that means that God in himself is relationship. And when he decided to create, he created this world and people, the crown of his creation, for relationship with him. He was so full of relationship that he wanted to share it and bring it out and bring others into it. And he needed more relationship. There's not enough being to relate to. Let's make some more. And so we're made for a relationship with God and for one another. If you've read Genesis 1, you know that over and over again, God's just making beautiful things. He's like this artist. He's like, let's make this. Oh, that's good. Let's make this. Oh, that's so good. Let's make this. And then finally he says, it's very, very good when he makes Adam. But in verse 18, just a little bit later in our passage, he says, it is not good. For the first time. It's not good. I've made all this, but something is not good. And what is that? It's that the man should be alone. This is not good that he should be alone. And so I will make a helper fit for him. Now this is mysterious. Somehow you can have paradise 
No sin, no brokenness, no injustice, no loneliness, you know, none of that stuff. You can have paradise. You can have perfect intimacy with God, unbroken, no guilt, and somehow still it can be not good if you're alone. If you're alone. That's not good. And so God makes Eve. We see it here in 21 and 22. Again, he puts the man to sleep, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had got, God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to a man at his side. Again, not taken from his feet so that he might subject her, not taken from his head that she might rule over him, but from his side, this partner, this companion, this equal next to him. And I want to just talk about this for a second. I spend the most time on this first point, but when we read this, if you're like me at least, if you read this, we've been conditioned, we kind of read this as a, the way you would watch a romantic movie drama, you know, like, oh, when, which couple is going to finally fall in love and meet, and then how are they going to have difficulty and find their way together? And so we read Adam and Eve, and we think of it as like this romantic uh, sort of material. And what I want to say is that it's not first and foremost just about the marriage of a man and a woman, two discrete individuals, the way that we think of it. Because we do it at our weddings, we do all these things. I mean, notice that even the author of Genesis here had to put a parenthesis in and say, hey, this applies to the reason why marriages transcend uh, the tribal family. You're going to actually leave your family and make a new one. This is that application. And the Apostle Paul makes the same application in the New Testament. So it's very much a direct application of this. But remember that this Genesis is origin material. This is given to a nation of people of Israel full of tribes uh, wandering or about to wander through a desert. And they're asking the question, who are we? Who is this God? What are we for? What, what should we, why should we trust him? What should we commit ourselves to? They're asking these kinds of questions and they're seeing their ancestors. They're seeing the, the original humanity in seed form, a man and a woman. And they're, seeing, they're asking those kind of questions. And so what they find in Genesis is that here was this lonely man. And, and you know, God is interesting. He does this for effect. He brings up two animals. And so Adam names them. He brings up two more. Adam names them. And you wonder what Adam may be starting to think. But you see that he finds that the animals, there was no, nothing that corresponded to him is the word. There was nothing else that corresponded to him the way that the animals had a corresponding partner. And so, maybe he begins to feel lonely, alone, out of place, not having the corresponding thing, right? And so God makes something that corresponds to her. And that word is rich, I won't just dwell on it, but it basically has, it's got built in exactly what you might think, this idea of something that is kind of identical and yet different. Something that is met, meant, basically, it looks like the other half of you, but it's meant to go together. Like a perfect puzzle piece. She's like me and she's not. We're two things that fit together. And the point here that Israel would have heard is that it takes others to complete me. It takes someone else to complete me. Genesis 2 tells us that we were made for what? We were made for mutual interdependence upon one another. We were made for one another. To give and to receive in committed love. To fit together to answer one another's loneliness. And therefore we're called to mirror life with God in our relationships. 
just a quick trite illustration of this. Uh, my wife wants more laughter in our life. She's like, we don't laugh enough, you know. And so um, everything's serious, you know. You just like ministry all the time. And you keep walk on the street and you're bumping into kids across the street uh, without families that you spend time with. And you have four kids of your own, all these things. And so she was like, I want to laugh. So for Christmas, I got her uh, tickets to, we went Friday to this place called the Comedy Cellar, which is, I guess, this historic com- uh, comedy venue. And the funny thing about laughter is, uh, you know, you can laugh a little bit on your own. You can. You can just chuckle. You can hear a joke. But isn't it true that when others laugh, sometimes it gets that weird sort of contagious thing where it, your laughter just becomes exponential? And if you hear someone who's having such a delight around you, they're laughing. You, just, you may have missed the joke, but it makes you laugh because it's just this sort of weird, contagious social thing. That's especially true if you happen to not be drinking for the month of January and everyone else in the comedy cellar is like four drinks in. It gets really funny, you know? It's, it's a blast. You could just be like, man, that person's laugh is terrific. And that's not, but it's funny. And you just find yourself cracking up the whole night, you know? I think this is just a trite example of the way God's made us. It's fine to laugh alone, but, man, you kind of lose yourself when you get caught up in the laughter of a group. group. If you laugh at loud all on your own, you might think, oh, that part wasn't supposed to be funny. I think people are looking at me. You're, you're self-aware, right? And so, this passage gives a vision of what your church, what my church, what our churches are called to be. A community that loves one another. And a community that answers the problem of loneliness that plagues our culture. And I'm sure, I know, I've spent some time with you guys, I know that you're already very good at this. I want to encourage you. Mark knows more specific ways, I'm sure, as do you. But I I can see that you, you have begun to answer the problem of loneliness for one another. The ways that you provide meals for each other, the way that you love to get together, that you fellowship, um, that you spend time talking to each other after church, the ways that you go out to eat, uh, that you take care of one another. But also this kind of relationship, this kind of community, it's not easy. And so I want to encourage you to keep up the effort, to take another step. It requires turning off the TV. It, It requires taking relational risks, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, inviting people into your home, refusing to allow social media to substitute for real friendship. We want to be a church here that answers the problem of loneliness. And what I'm trying to tell you is if you, especially if you're investigating Christianity and you're not sure of what the Christian life looks like, if those of you who've been doing this, you know what I'm about to say is true, none of this means that you'll never be lonely. That's impossible. You'll never be lonely this side of the new heavens and the new earth. But what it means is that you'll fight it with the only weapon and the only strategy that ultimately will last, which is deep Christian community by the power of the Spirit. And so, in application, we're going to move on, but I have just a few questions for you. How many of your hopes for 2015, how many of your commitments for this year have at their center the attempt to deepen your Christian relationships? Or to bring others into Christian relationship. But speaking just of myself, I mean, I will give up food. I will, I will save and sacrifice money to put it away so I can travel. I will, I will commit time from other things to new projects that I think are more important. Some of you will commit your heart to new relationships, and dates, or whatever it may be. But what are we planning to sacrifice to pursue deeper relationships in the body of Christ? Will we give up our privacy and our downtime to host people? 
Give up just a little bit of money to take someone out for coffee or dinner. Give up some of our pet projects or our playtime to make church every week that we can this year and be a part of Christian community and worship. Give up time to be a part of a small group. Maybe just give up a piece of our heart to entrust ourselves to one another, to people who have no romantic or economic interest in you and exploiting you. Instead, they're just there. Now, if you hear some of that and it's already intimidating, let's move to our second point. I think this will be helpful. That's not meant to be an individualistic application. It's not meant to be one new resolution of, well, okay, I, Jameson Galt, I've added to my new fitness regimen and to my diet and to my new plans, my free time. I'm going to add this new thing. I'll just be strong, Jameson, and do that. No, 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 no. The point, and we see this as we move on, the point is that actually because of Christian communion, because we're made for relationship, someone in this church may pursue you first. In grace. Before you're even ready or you're able to commit to it or you make any sacrifice or you resolve to do it, someone may find you and begin to bring you into deeper relationship. And that's because we find that in relationships, our second point, work, God's work specifically, is to be shared. So loneliness is thwarted by Christian relationship, but also work is shared. What this means, and I'll I'll put it this way, we saw just a moment ago that we were not made to be in isolation. Instead, we were made for community. We're made for one another. It's also true that we were made not for collaboration. I mean, sorry, not for competition, but for collaboration. So that means at, at the heart of the universe is not this reality of eat or be eaten, do or die, the fit survive, the strong go, the weak are cast away. That's not at the heart of reality. Instead, at the heart of reality is not competition, but collaboration. One of the primary ways that we combat loneliness is by engaging together in a common mission. We share together in labor. Would you look and notice why God says it's not good for Adam to be alone? We often assume, and I kind of hinted that this may be the case, who knows, it's speculative. We often assume it's because Adam felt lonely. In other words, he had feelings of, oh, there's, the froggies have a pair. Where's my pair, right? I feel sad. Who knows? Who knows what he felt? It may be true. But the passage says the reason he was alone is that be, he, because he needed someone to help him. He needed someone to help him. And again, this is deeply Trinitarian. This is deeply about the Christian God in and of his own essence and being. Because Christian theology teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a community of collaboration. They share in each other's works. I mean, do this sometime. If you haven't done it before, do it sometime this week if you'd like. Read Genesis 1 and 2. And then read any of the passages that sort of refer back to it. It's hard to tell who is doing what in creation, right? Right? It's like the Father is doing the work, and yet also you notice that the Spirit is hovering over the waters and helping bring things into being already here. And he's saying, let us. That's strange. And then you get to the New Testament, you find that he says, he made all things through Jesus, and for him, and unto him. And the Spirit, you know, you just, who did what? And the same thing is true when you start looking at passages that talk about the way God worked to redeem humanity and to save people like you and me, and to save a people for himself. 
Who's doing what? The Father is the one sending. The, fa- the Son's saying nothing of His own. He's saying only what the Father says. And yet at the same time, Jesus is living His life, dying for us, giving Himself for us. The Spirit is the one applying it to people and, and making uh, them love God back. They're all present. They're working together. The community of collaboration. And one of the most amazing parts we see when we look at Genesis 2 about what we were made for is that God invites humanity to share in his labor too. It's not even just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He invites his creations to share in his labor. Verses 19 and 20. It recounts at the beginning of 19 what God had done. He had created all of these things, right? But then it says he brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And he gave names to everything, right? But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. To name something is a sign of authorship. It's a sign of authority. It's as if God is saying Adam gets credit and some sort of authority and power and responsibility over these things, right? You get to share in my work. This is the original understanding of the word vocation. That at the base, all, at the base beneath, beneath whatever you get paid to do or not paid to do, beneath all these things you were created as a human being, that in all of your life you might be invited into the work of God and he shares it with you. He gives you that dignity. And so whatever we do in this world, whether it's an architect, a teacher, a lawyer, a city planner, a banker, a parent, a friend, all of that is a participation in God's work. And so one of the purposes of a church like this, of Christian community, is that it will enable and further our ability to share God's labor in the world together, that together we might embody and take responsibility for and even by God's grace, give, be given some credit for being a part of his work in the world. I'd love for you to take a deep breath and let me read to you a very long quote. Is that okay? It's a good one. I'm, the first part is just here for your enjoyment. The second part is, will bring us back to what I, where I just left off. But this is from Stephen Colbert. And I don't know how to cut off the first paragraph because it's funny. So I thought I would read it to you. As I said, laughter brings us together. So, you know, this is intentional. Stephen Colbert uh, went back to Northwestern, uh, his alma mater, and gave the uh, commencement speech a few years ago, and and here's towards the end of it. So he's speaking to these graduates, and he says, you have been told to follow your dreams, but what if it's a stupid dream? For instance, he says, Stephen Colbert of 25 years ago lived at 2015 Northridge with two men and three women. Um, He dreamed of living alone, well, alone with his beard, in a large barren loft apartment, lots of blonde wood, wearing a kimono with a futon on the floor and a samovar of tea constantly bubbling in the background, doing Shakespeare in the street for the homeless. Today, I'm a beardless suburban dad who lives in a house, wears no iron khakis, and makes Anthony Weiner jokes for a living. And I love it. Because thankfully, dreams can change. If we'd all stuck with our first dream, the world would be overrun with cowboys and princesses. So whatever your dream is right now, if you don't achieve it, you haven't failed, and you're not some loser, but just as importantly, and this is the part I may not get right and you may not listen to, if you do get your dream, you are not necessarily a winner. 
And he continues his thought, but this is where it returns to applying more specifically to where we just left off. He says, after I graduated from here, I moved down to Chicago and I did improv. You guys know he's a comedian, so he started with improv. Now, there are very few rules to improvisation, but one of the things I was taught early on is that, if you are not, that, it is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Ever. Everybody, everybody else is in improv, okay? And if they're the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and you will serve them. But the good news is you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person and they will serve you. And no one's leading. You're all following the follower, serving the servant. You cannot win improv. And life is an improvisation. You have no idea what's going to happen next, and you are mostly making, just making things up as you go along. And like improv, you cannot win your life. Even when it might look like you're winning. I have my own show, which I love doing, full of very talented people ready to serve me, and it's great, but at my best, I am serving them just as hard. And together we serve a common idea, in this case, the character Stephen Colbert who it's clear isn't interested in serving anyone. And a sure sign that things are going well is when no one can really remember whose idea was whose or who should get credit for what jokes. Though naturally, I, credit, I get credit for all of them. And this is closing to the end here. If we should serve others and together serve some common goal or idea for any one of you, what is that idea? And who are those people? In my experience, you will truly serve only what you love. Because as the prophet says, service is love made visible. If you love friends, you will serve your friends. If you love community, you will serve community. If you love money, you will serve money. And if you love only yourself, you will serve only yourself. And you will have only yourself. Quite a commencement speech right there. And I don't know him personally, but from what I've read, those experiences, that sentiment is based on his own Christian commitment. Regardless, good words. And exactly what he's getting at here, that when you serve one another, when you are all focused on others more than yourself, and in reciprocation, they're more focused on you than they are on themselves, then Everyone gets served. It's not competition. It's not a hundred people fighting one another, but instead a hundred seeking to bless one another just like the Trinity. A community that doesn't just receive, and this is your challenge, a community that doesn't come here or go to things or be involved just to receive, just to consume, whether it be a good sermon or, or any of the benefits they give here. But instead you come together to work together you have, everyone, you, you might not use this word, but everyone has in their worship folder an order, and that, the word, the, the Greek word for that is liturgy, right? Whatever your liturgy is, you have one, it's the order. And what that word actually means is the work of the people. So in other words, when you come to worship, you're actually sharing a script, putting your vision on someone else, and working together to make this drama come to life. You're, you're doing that this morning. You come to work together, Lord willing, to begin to practice reconciliation over conflicts, to practice together praying for things you might not pray for on your own, 
to think about and dream and enact ways to renew the East End, to leaven schools, to commit to the arts, to bring lonely people into communion, to find the marginalized, to train up children, eventually perhaps to plant churches, to work together, to co-labor in God's work. And so the question here, what part of God's work are you sharing in with others? What part of God's work are you sharing in with others in the months to come? One thing I think, and this will be our last point, if you think about it, it could be a personal project, it could be your work, it could be a, a sort of side gig. Who is it that you want to collaborate with? Who is it that you think, man, and, you know, I don't know how many, like, where, you, where your guys' A vocations are, but if I could just make a deal with this person, man, our business would really take off. Or if I could get this person to help me, we could, we could buy that lot and do this really cool thing. Or we could, we could use this old building for this arts thing that would be so great. Or, you know, whatever your project is, who do you find yourself wanting to collaborate with? It's usually people that you admire, right? You just think, man, I admire that person so much. And if I could collaborate with them on some, some level, something really good would happen. And so if you want to work together, you need this last point. You need to be able to admire basically one another because in Christian relationships, we are made so that in Christian relationships, our dignity will be celebrated. That your dignity will be celebrated. So in Christian relationships, loneliness is thwarted. In Christian, we share work together. And lastly, in Christian relationships, your dignity is to be celebrated. We started looking at this just a second ago. The picture that you have, if you look through the, the, uh, the New Testament especially, and you, and you get these ideas of, of God and his being, you can see it especially in Genesis 4, 4, or sorry, John 14 through 17, when Jesus is about to die and talking about his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. You see that they exist in what I'm going to call mutual celebration. Mutual celebration. Jesus is like... Quit giving me glory. Give it to God the Father. God the Father's like, I just can't wait to glorify Jesus. And then the Spirit comes around, and it almost, you know, sometimes we feel like the Spirit is all hardly a person because his whole existence is just to praise God the Father and Jesus the Son. And what this means is that at the heart of reality, at the heart of what you're made for, at the heart of this universe, is not indifference. It's not self-promotion. It's not envy. Instead, what's at the heart of the way God has made you in the world is the praise of others. Now, that's not intuitive, is it? That doesn't seem intuitive because we usually find the beauty and goodness of another person threatening, right? But God here invites us into this dance of mutual adoration with him in order that we might share this joy God has of praising one another, and that with one another we might praise God and praise one another. You see it here in verse 23. Then the man said, he sees Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And if you could see the Hebrew, you might understand, I mean, at least my, I, I've learned Hebrew, but I, I couldn't have told you this, that this is actually crafted, intentional, high poetry, right? And so, if you start at the beginning from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you wait to see the first human words in the Bible, 
The first human words that the first human being ever said that sprung out of the center of what human beings were to be, the very first words of a human being in the Bible is one human being praising another human being. This intentional piece of art that's been crafted to delight in another. And that's not all. It makes a point to say, in verse 22, that it was the Lord God who brought her to the man. What this means is not only that you're made to praise others, but that others are God's gift that he brings to you. Sitting next to you is a majestic gift of God to you. Again, if you're like me, if I'm not uniquely depraved in this regard, how often I've thought, God, I know you're real. Would you just, I just feel like you, you know, I need you to show me your love by doing this. Can you just show me that you're loving and faithful by doing this thing for me? Could you fix this? Could you provide this thing that I don't have? Could you do this? And that's fine. But do you know how often I've made those prayers? While literally sitting physically around me? Or the most unfathomable, unfathomable gifts that God ever intended for me to have? And I'm overlooking them. I'm not at all thinking that these are God's best gift he could have ever given to convince me that he loves me and is faithful. That's why Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. The fact is, when you're delighted in by other people, you're free, right, to open up. You're free to be seen and to see others and to be accepted and to free your, your heart up to love others more fully. We're meant to mirror this mutual delight that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and as I said, it's not easy. And so we have to learn this language of delight. You have to do things like meditate on Genesis chapter 2. We have to look in the Bible and see the ways that people praise one another. You have to see the way that Paul, and if you know anything about the early churches, they were a, a terrible mess in some ways. And yet Paul can be in prison with very little signs that God has, is providing for him or giving him a, a wonderful existence or loves him in those ways. And yet he can sit there and say, my heart, my joy, everything that I rejoice in is the fact that you were there and, and you were brought into being as a church and I know that you're doing okay. Or that you're making steps even in the midst of all these terrible things in your midst. That's what convinces me that God is good and here with me even in this prison cell. Can your church become a place where not one person in this community lives their lives wondering in what specific ways they are glorious and full of dignity? Another tried illustration, but even just last night, um, it was recorded, so we watched it late online with my kids. We have a parishioner who was on one of the original American Idol auditions, right? And we knew this was coming. I knew it was going to happen. I knew she was going to make it to the next round. Um, and it comes on, and it's interesting. Have you guys watched it? I haven't watched it since the first season, like 14 seasons ago, but I wanted to watch it because we have this parishioner on there. And, uh, and you watch it, and they've got rid of all the stuff that used to be my favorite part where people that shouldn't be there are there um, singing. 
And that's probably because I'm mean-spirited and I like to laugh at people. Um, <laughs> but they got rid of most of that. But every once in a while you do see, you continue, that you see these persons that, that would come in. And they were, they were pl- placing all their hope. You know, maybe this is the one thing I've found that no one believes in that gives me a little bit of dignity. And if I can go before these celebrities who will validate that experience, I'll suddenly know I'm special and I know I'm somebody. And they just say, you know what? You're, you're good at this, you're good at that, but we're going to pass today. And they will just fall apart. They're just destroyed because at the basis, we think self-promotion, envy, indifference, lonely, that we're alone. That this is where we might find our dignity and it's this, in this free market of just competition. And unless someone validates it, we're undone. That's the, the hard part. The flip side of that is I knew that my friend was going to make it through and yet, and I, actually at Thanksgiving she sat with me and others in our living room and we sat around and sang songs and it was great. But just to see it be sung, and then to know that it's on national television in this competitive environment, and then to see Harry Connick Jr. and Jennifer Lopez and somebody else look at her and be like, you're so amazing. You're an artist. We rejoice in who you are. I started crying. I'm like a stupid American idol. <laughs> 37 years old, whatever, you know. Because it's just so freeing and beautiful to see someone validate your dignity. Right? So I want to encourage you to become a church that celebrates one another. Practice together. So that everyone in this church will know specific ways in which they're beautiful and glorious. In your small meetings, set aside time on a regular basis to express appreciation for one another. And this is important. The primary way to learn to delight in someone else, because you will find people that you don't you can't see what it is. You just can't, right? It's part of our blindness. I mean, C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard this quote, but C.S. Lewis said that if you could see the person next to you right now in their redeemed glory in the new heavens and new earth, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship them. So if you can't see it, it's okay, but it just means that you're blind. It's not their fault. The fact is, if you want to delight in people, you begin to look at the way God sees them. And God thinks the person that you find most difficult was beautiful enough to give his life for. Meditate on that. And then look for the glory breaking out in their life. So in closing, we crave relationship because God made us to crave relationship. He made us to crave relationship because he wants us to never be satisfied with anything less than all of him. In other words, he's not going to let you just be satisfied with a work and a family and a 401k, you know? He's not going to let you. He made you that you will never stop short of all of him, Father, Son, and Spirit, in his goodness and his glory and his love and his power. And not only that, but all of his people, all of his creation that is peopled literally with just individuals and characteristics and talents and a body working together in love, in unity. That's what you're made for. And the fact is, God made you to crave this because he craves you. He craved relationship. He craves relationship with you. And if you want proof, see what Jesus did and does. He pursued relationship with you. 
by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, he proved that he is the ultimate bridegroom. He is the ultimate one that wanted a bride to be made from his side and knit to him and to become one flesh with people like you and me that he might rejoice with singing over us. He loves us to death. And his love will win out over loneliness. It will win out over competitiveness. It will win out over indifference. And when it does, he will make us into a community that pursues one another, that shares in mission, and that celebrates God and one another. Friends, we were made by God for him and for one another. May he give you and I the grace to pursue him and to pursue one another this year and beyond. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray now simply that as we continue to worship, you would enable us, wherever we are, again, in our faith, whatever doubts or struggles we have, enable us to give ourselves to you as you are pursuing us even now. In this worship service, your word, your invitation at the table, these things are ways that you're pursuing us and so enable us to give ourselves to you in this worship service that we might learn to give ourselves to one another. We thank you and praise you and make these requests in Jesus' name. Amen.